Mark chapter 9, and uh, we got down through verse number 9 last time. I want to go back up and uh, just, uh, we went through the event of the Mount Transfiguration, and uh, verse 8 here, and suddenly when they had looked around about, they saw no man anymore, save Jesus only with themselves. Now, who they had seen was uh, back up in verse 2, and after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into a high mountain, apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So the high mountain ends up being Mount Horeb, and uh, there, verse 4, and there appeared unto them Elias and Moses, and they were t talking with Jesus. And those three guy, three men are listed, and when you uh, come over to Malachi 4, when you leave the Old Testament and go into the last Four names in the Old Testament are here on the Mount Transfiguration. And uh, it's just a fascinating thing here that uh, these guys are here. Uh, Mark, or Malachi 4, verse number, uh, well, verse 1. Uh, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be, ash, uh, be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses, and that's going to be Deuteronomy 18, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, now uh, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. That's going to be the high mountain that they're pulled up on, Mark 9, the Mount Transfiguration. So a Mount Transfiguration, who do we have? We have the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. We're up on Mount Horeb. We have Moses, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And again, there's Jehovah and so forth. So in Mark 9, they've just been taken up. They've seen the glory. He just told them in chapter 8, I got to go suffer and die. But I don't want you to lose hope in all of that. We're going to have some information over here now for you about the future glory. And now they're coming down. Go back to Mark 9. Now they're coming down off of the mountain. And as they come down off that mountain, they're, they're, suddenly there's no one there but Jesus. They're on their way down, verse 9. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were, were risen from the dead. Now there's a couple things happening here that really are important for us to get this evening in our thinking because when we get down in verse 14 and following, they're going to come back down into the world, and there, there's a whole lot of mess going on. The scribes are attacking the little flock. There's a man, they can't heal the guy. The, dad, the man's all upset. The son's going to, you know, all this stuff is going on. So there's a picture here that's happening. So the first thing off the bat, verse 9, is tell no man. 
Now, that goes against everything that the evangelical Christian community says about the, the template of evangelism is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they say. And yet, what is he saying? Don't tell anybody. So really, and by the way, how they handle these three times that he says this is they ignore it. They just, they don't even address it. And if they do address it, it's more of a, of a skirt around rather than a full on. But what does he say? Well, by the way, the evangelical community, they say that the Christ and his evangelistic style was to gather everybody together. Everybody's the equal. Everybody's on the same page. But yet, what does he just say? Actually, he says it three times. We see it in Matthew 12, Matthew 16, Matthew 17. But here in Mark, he does it as well. Come over to chapter 3. And we've seen these already. Mark 3. And again, <laughs> he, this is not the model of outreach for the church today. I'm sorry. I, I was dealing with the guy a couple weeks ago. And he's like, man, we got to be out there, you know, pounding the pavement, doing it. And I'm like, but we're following Jesus. I go, no, that's not the model for today. Mark 3, verse 6. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. He just healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath day. Now they openly want to kill him. So Jesus withdraws, goes the disciples to the sea there. They're mul healing multitudes, verse 12. And he straightly, straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Now that is going to be, if you look at verse 10, for he had healed many insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him. As many as had plagues and unclean spirits when they saw him fell down before him and cried, saying, Now watch, thou art the Son of God. So when he says, Don't tell anybody, don't make, make me known, what he's doing is he is, he is de-emphasizing his person as Messiah. He's pulling back. He's been emphasizing it, emphasizing it. Now he's going to de-emphasize the first here is his personhood, who he is, who is he? You're the son of God. And he's like, don't you tell anybody that. So there's a de-emphasis, he's de-emphasizing the offer of the Messiah in him, his person, who he is. Chapter 8 of Mark. We just saw this a couple weeks ago. Chapter 8, verse 30. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. Peter has just said, you're the Christ. Thou art the Christ. You're the Messiah. So now he's de-emphasizing his messianic office. Why? Verse 31, it's time to go to the cross. The, the issue now isn't going to be his, his person or his office. The issue now is Calvary. Go to the cross. Then now here in 9.9, he charged them that they should tell no man. Now he's de-emphasizing the messianic glory. What did they just see? They saw his kingdom glory. They were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They see the glory. They see the future. They get a glimpse of it, a taste of it. Now he's de-emphasizing his messianic glory. So in the three don't tell nobodies, 
There, he's really, by the way, they can't tell anyone until the Son of Man were risen from the dead, okay? After that, after the resurrection, they can proclaim his glory all they want. So we have this issue of a de-emphasizing de him, his office, his per person, his, his uh, office, and his glory. And again, they just saw his glory. And then he tells them, don't you say anything until the Son of Man be risen from the dead. And that's really now the kind of the hook here, risen from the dead. Verse 10, and they kept that saying with, the, with themselves. Now notice the Peter and James and John come down, and what does he tell them? You don't say until the Son of Man is risen. By the way, till... It's a timing word, timing it here again. Again, back up there in verse 1, there's some of you that stand here that which shall not taste death till they have seen the kingdom of God. See, there are some, and by the way, the answer to all of the questions about Mar, uh, Mark 9.1, Matthew 16.28, Luke 9, everybody says, see, those are mistakes because... Those guys died off, and they didn't see it, but yet, what does Peter say in, in, first, in 2 Peter 1? We did see it. We were. I, but really, the answer to the timing is the issue of dispensational Bible study. It's the issue of right division. Because there is a time, had the Lord not interrupted the program, there were, they, these people would have seen the kingdom. Some of them wouldn't have, but mo a majority of them would have. So... Verse number 10, 9, 10. And they kept that saying within themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. You see, they believed and they understood the issue of the resurrection. Very well known. I was having a conversation with another grace pastor here this past, uh, uh, well, Monday. Today's Wednesday, Monday. And we were talking about the the issues that are going through right now, our circles about their, about the dead, you know, soul sleep, annihilation, universalism, everybody's forgiven, nobody's forgiven, everybody's this, or, you know, and all of the stuff and how it's being portrayed as a new idea, but it's not new. And we got into the conversation about Paul doesn't use the word hell. Okay, but... Hell is a doctrine that is taught throughout the scripture. So he doesn't have to talk about hell. In, Revel in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he starts with the issue right off the bat of, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unright. The wrath of God, well, what is that? See, so there's a judgment. There, it starts right away. So the, the claim of, well, Paul doesn't use the word hell is, is just, it's stupidity, okay? Because, and it's just like these guys, the issue of resurrection, the issue of the judgment of the lost is there from the very beginning, and it's taught all through Scripture. So just FYI, because Paul doesn't talk about a term specifically doesn't mean it's not true when the rest of Scripture does talk about it. And these guys believed, 
They understood the issue of the resurrection of the dead. Job, the oldest book, he knew he was going to be resurrected from the dead. He understood that, Job 19. So here, the question isn't the resurrection of the dead. The question that they're pondering is the, the rising from the dead, but what should it mean? You see, the resurrection of the dead is all the dead are going to rise. But the resurrection from the dead means only some are going to rise, some are left in death, and some are resurrected. So what in the world does that mean? So if, again, their, their quandary in their questioning is a timing issue. Because if there, there's going to be a resurrection from the dead and a resurrection of the dead, so then which one's first? Which one comes second? How does this work? What's the order? So all of that is built into this. And again, they just saw the Mount Transfiguration event. What that taught them is that there's some things... So immediately they come down the hill, and they're, <coughs> and they're coming back to reality, if you will. Because the kingdom glory that they just saw in the transfiguration isn't coming right away. What's next? His death. His suffering. Then after that, the resurrection. And then after that, the glory. See, they, they understand the time, but the Lord throws them a little wrench there, risen from the dead. Wait a minute, what does that mean? And that's really what is kind of got him, you know, questioning here. When, he, when his resurrection from the dead takes place, now, then, and after that, do they have that opportunity to proclaim his glory and to move forward? So we have a timing issue. We have an understanding problem here. What's going on what is this resurrection from rising from the dead we just saw the glory of the kingdom now we got to wait for the resurrection from the dead what what's happening here and by the way i hope <laughs> i think about things as we go through this the glory of the kingdom sits on resurrection ground Israel comes out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. That is a picture of death to Egypt, to the world. And the birth of the nation, resurrection. He, Exodus 19, he says, he brought them unto himself. That's a picture of resurrection life. Well, if he's bringing it, where are they going to go? Exodus 19. They're going to be a kingdom of priests. So kingdom glory sits in on the issue of resurrection life. That's where it sits. Now, why this is going to be important, verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. Verse 16. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? The, the scribes attack. He comes down the mountain. He, again, he's got Peter, James, and John with them. They're having a conversation. He comes down to the disciples now, and he finds a mess. 
he finds them, verse 19, he answered him, said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? See, he finds them, verse 21, and he asked his father, how long is it? It goes, this came unto him, and he said, of a child, and oftentimes it was casting. And this child, verse 29, and he said unto them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fast. You see, there's, there's something, there's a condition now. The scribes are attacking. There's a dad in distress about his child. And what, he, what, you're, what we'll see when we get into chapter, verse 14 and following next time is we literally see a picture of the world as he finds it at his second coming. Here's a picture of Israel. Here's, by the way, what is Israel doing? They're not functioning by faith. Why are they not able to heal the guy and take care of it? Because they're not listening to the word and believing the word. And we've seen that, and we'll see it again as we go through. So the idea here, again, at his coming, what's happening? There's a mess. There's trouble. The little flock is under attack. They just saw his kingdom glory. They're going to go. They, they're getting ready. They want to go right into it, and he says, hang on a minute. We can't get there just yet. We have to. There's some, there, you can't go into a kingdom glory. you got to go through the rejection first, and that's the idea, till the resurrection. There's something that still has to be dealt with prior to the glory coming, and that's where we're at. There's a timing here, and that's why the emphasis on resurrect the rising from the dead because they're not there yet that's why the lord says it that way he says listen you can't tell anybody about what you saw up here the glory because i haven't suffered yet i haven't died yet you haven't suffered yet you haven't died yet it's not time yet so he gets into it with them so verse 11 and they ask him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? Now, that's a great question, because that's what the prophets say, that before the kingdom can come, before that great and notable day of the Lord, that great and dreadful day, that great and terrible day, before that can happen, Malachi 4, who has to show up? Elijah does. And that if Elijah comes first, then why in the world are you telling us in verse 31 that you got to go 831 and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and be killed and suffer and die and be resurrected if that what's going on here you told us you have to be rejected you have to die yet we just saw Elijah and Moses and you we just saw that and everybody says, all the prophets say, that Elijah has to come before the kingdom. That's a head-scratcher for them. By the way, it's a head-scratcher for most. That's why you get into some of this, and they just keep on trucking. They don't stop because they don't understand the answer. Because he's going to answer them. You just told us you have to die. We just saw suffer the sufferings of Christ. We just saw the glories of Christ. You tell us we can't say nothing until you're risen from the dead. What does that mean? And then, oh, by the way, what's this thing about Elijah coming? 
How does this all fit together? That's their question, ultimately. It's a time. It's not questioning of doubt or unbelief. It's a question of how does it fit together. Come with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Again, Peter gives us the question of the ages. How does all this work together? 1 Peter 1 verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvations the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Notice what the prophets are looking for. They, they're, they're searching what or what manner of what? Of time that the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings and the glory that should follow. You see, they're looking at the time. They're looking at what is this? What manner is this? What does this mean? What is it? But then also, how does it fit together? Verse 12, unto whom it was revealed that, that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the Holy... Or, sorry, that have preached the gospel unto you which the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The prophets didn't get the timing issue either. They're studying out. They're looking into it. They saw that's the same condition with the disciples. They didn't get the timing element. Okay? They're looking at this going, how does all this gel? They had just come down off that mountain. Come back over there to Malachi 4. They just came off that mountain. They see the kingdom glory. And now he tells them he's got to suffer and die. <laughs> and you can't say anything until I resurrect. And they're like, okay, so when? How does this all work together? What's the timing? Okay? So Malachi 4, where we were reading, we read just a few minutes ago. Verse 4, remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. So there's Moses. Horeb, that's again where the Mount Transfiguration takes place up on that high mountain, the great mountain. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Okay, so Elijah's coming. It's clear what does Malachi, by the way, it's, this is also in Deuteronomy and in other places, it's clear that Elijah has to show up before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Okay? The great and terrible day. The great and, the great and notable day. All of those. Uh, the day of the Lord. The, when, he, when that phrase, because um, I've been looking at this for the men's fellowship, about talking about the day of the Lord. When it says the great and dreadful day of the Lord, He's, it's a very specific time on the day of the Lord, in the day of the Lord. And that is a very specific period of intense wrath right before the second coming, the advent. Okay? 
The day of the Lord is a long period of time in Israel's history. It starts with the Babylonian captivity, 606 B.C., and it's going to carry all the way out through the millennial to the great white throne judgment and actually out into the new heaven and the new earth. It's a long thing, and it has different periods of time involved in it. Okay? There is a point in time where there's the intensification of his wrath being poured out. And that's what's signified by the great and terrible, great and dreadful, great and notable day of the Lord. Before that happens, Elijah is going to come and he's going to call out that believing remnant in Israel. Okay? They, the disciples, they know this. They understand it. They just saw Elijah. <laughs> They've come down, yet what does the Lord say? you got to die. I'm going to die. So you think about Peter, James, and John. They just saw vic victory, and now you're talking about defeat. What gives? How does this work? Okay? So when you come back now to Mark, watch the Lord's answer to them. Mark 9, verse 12. And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught. Guys, the things are true. That's what he's saying. This, yeah, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go suffer and die. The glory is going to come, but before that, Elijah it will be here. Verse 13, but I say unto you, now watch, that Elias is indeed come. And they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. What? The prophets say he shall come. Christ just said what? He has, he's already come. Huh? See? Now, by the way, and he listed. You got a honeydew list? Everything that they've done to Elijah, by the way, we're going to look at it in the form of John the Baptist, was listed down. They've done everything on their list to him. And that's where we're at. Now, again, what did Christ just say? Elijah is come. When, what did they do to him? They rejected him. They treated him the same way as they're treating the Messiah. And he says that to them to be comforting to them, but I think it just kind of added to their confusion <laughs> here in Mark 9. So Elijah is come. Now, obviously, the Lord's talking about uh, John the Baptist, but let's look at that to see how he got there, okay? He doesn't say it here in Mark. He says it in Matthew. Come over to Luke 1 and think about OJB, John the Baptist. Because what is John the Baptist doing? John, Luke 1, verse 13. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for the... Excuse me. Melanie's not here to blame. Sorry. <laughs> She's not here to blame. Said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. 
Now, this is not the Apostle John or any of that. This is John the Baptist. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He'll have a Nazarite vow. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall be turned to the Lord their God. That's, what he's, that's his job. What's his job to do? Verse 17. And he shall go before him, the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What's he going to do? He's going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's going to go out there and he's going to gather up that believing remnant from amongst the apostate Israel, and he's going to do it in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. So really, we need to spend, you need to spend some time reading about Elijah in, the, in, in Kings. But what does he do? He goes out and he takes, he's talking about the, the, he takes the, the spiritual place of Elijah, and he calls Israel back to the Lord and to restore them. Mark 9, 13, how are they going to react to that? They're going to treat him like they're tr they treat everybody, which is reject him. Okay? When he says the power of Elijah, you remember Elijah and Elisha? And the, Elijah's mantle falls to Elisha? And then Elisha has the double portion, but he's got that power. He, Elijah can, no rain, rain. Goes in, calls the, the Baal worship stuff down. He's, he's got the power. He's going to be Elijah in spirit and in power. So the events, come over to John 1, the events around John the Baptist are going to picture and mirror Elijah. John 1, verse 19. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And that will be Deuteronomy 18, about the prophet like unto Moses and so forth. What does he say? He says, No. So let's think about, who does John the Baptist think he is? He's not Christ, he's not Elijah, and he's not Moses. He says that. But now watch verse 22. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as saith the prophet Isaiah. You know what he says? You know who I am? I'm the voice of Isaiah 40, verse 3. That's who I am. There's the spirit of Elijah. I'm the voice. Again, he never says, I'm Elijah. Yet he came in the spirit and power of Elijah to do what? Call Israel to, to repentance, to be restored. See that? So he comes, and what has he done? 
He's done the voice. He's prepared the way. He's called. And Christ says, you know what? John is Elijah. John says, no, I'm the voice. We've got a predicament here. Nobody kind of identity crisis. Now, well, not really. Come over to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. So when you think about this, they, the disciples are genuinely confused about stuff, and it's, it's, it's a timing thing. It isn't really about Elijah and John the Baptist. It's, a, it's like, wait a minute. You're, you're telling us you're going to die. You show us glory. We come back down, and you're going to die and be risen from the dead. And yet we just saw Elijah. So how does he fit into this? Where does this fit on the timeline? That's literally what they're asking. And the Lord says, you know what? The prophets are right. Everything you just said is right. But by the way, Elijah has come. But in who? In John the Baptist. Matthew 17, verse 10. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes, that Elias must first come. Now, this is our counter. This is the parallel passage to our Mark 9 in the Transfiguration. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of who? John the Baptist. Peter, hey, give us the timeline. Elijah shall come, future. No, he's here. And you know what the disciple, it finally clicked. It's John the Baptist. That's who he's talking about. Jesus Christ has identified John the Baptist as being... Elijah. There it is. Now come over to chapter 11. Chapter 11 of Matthew. And chapter 11 of Matthew helps a lot in this, I think, because John the Baptist is in prison. Uh, verse 1, and it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of the commandment, his 12 disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in, John, in their cities. Now when John had heard and in the prison, the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again these things which thou do hear and see. And then he quotes Isaiah 35, verses 1 to 6. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. So what does he do? He says, look, guys, go back to John in prison, and you remind him of everything he's seen me do and how that matches Isaiah 35, how that puts right there. Go remind John of what he has seen. Isaiah 35, by the way, look back there. Make the phrase, Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, um, again, a passage about the kingdom. Isaiah 35, if you uh, look there at verse 4, just catch the phrase. 
Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Watch. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with the recompense. He will come and save you. Turn the eyes of the blind and, and so forth. So what are they looking for? Your God, when you see all of this happening, that means your God has showed up. Messiah is here. All of the miracles he's been doing, go back to Matthew 11, all the miracles he's been doing has demonstrated that who is he? God. He's Messiah. So go tell, excuse me, go tell John the Baptist, just relax. You know what John's basically asking is if you're Messiah, what am I still doing in prison? That's what he's asking. <laughs> go tell John, relax, don't lose heart here. Just remind him who he saw, who I am, and he's there. Matthew 11, verse 7. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind. Did you go out there to see a weakling just bouncing back and forth in the wind? Okay. But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that were soft clothing are in the king's house. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. Is, who is John? He's the voice. He's the messenger. He's the one out there doing it. He, he's fulfilling Malachi 3.1 here. Okay? For this is he, of whom it is written, verse 10, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. Verily, I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath none risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent taketh it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. He's the fulfillment of it. There he is. He's the one. He's the voice. He's coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's, well, watch verse 14. And if ye will receive it, this is Elijah, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. You see the if? There's a contingency built into here. Because if Israel had received, if Israel had responded positively by faith to John the Baptist preparing the way, the voice, to the Lord Jesus Christ being the Messiah, if they would have repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, if they had done that, then what, who would John had been? He would have been Elijah. Who would the Lord have been? That prophet. That's who he would have been. So there's a contingency here. And John the Baptist would have fulfilled the, the, the regulations, the requirements of, of Elijah. It would have happened. But since they didn't respond positively by faith, they did reject him. Then John, is he's a picture of a future coming of Elijah. He's just, they're getting a picture of it, a taste of it. 
See, the person of Elijah has been postponed until the second coming out there showing up, okay? And that's, again, God knows what's going to happen. None of this is, so that's why he tells Luke 1, he's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's not Elijah. When they ask him, are you Elijah, he says no because he's not. He's the voice. He's the preparer. He's John the Baptist. He's got, that's him. But Gabriel tells Zacharias he's coming in the spirit and power of. He's coming representing. So this contingency plan is here. And what that contingency plan does is it makes the offer of the kingdom to Israel legitimate. It takes the offer given to Israel by the Lord and by John the Baptist to be legitimate. Because if it wasn't, I'm talking about the contingency, then it's all a con and they were never going to have it and that wasn't the case. Because Elijah has to be there. Malachi 4 is clear. He has to be there prior to the second coming and the kingdom and so forth. And literally, what's happening is, is there's a contingency because God doesn't override the will of man. That's why he says, if they had believed, that would have been a light, but they didn't. That's why he says, verse 15, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. There's a provision here. Because if Israel had, tr- had trusted, come over to Acts 3 had trusted prophecy, the requirements of the prophets would have been fulfilled. And that's critical in in um, legitimizing the offer made by the Lord and John of the coming kingdom. It had to be that way. If it wasn't, then it, it was a sham. It was a con deal. Acts 3, look at here at verse 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive until the time of restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. If it's legitimate, then guess who had to be fulfilled? The prophetic requirements. And the prophetic requirement is one of what? Elijah's got to show up. So who did John the Baptist come? He came in the spirit of, the power of. He comes as a picture of. And if Israel accepts that, then who does he become? He becomes Elijah. He doesn't, they don't, sorry, so he's doing something else, okay? Now, that helps. Are you, you're, you're in Acts, right? Stick something there. Run back to Psalms 118. It's something very fascinating to me. Psalms 118. When you think about the issue of the legitimate offer And what would have happened if Israel had believed John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ? Okay? 
Psalms 118 is a, is a messianic psalm. It's about Messiah. Um, actually, it, it has been called the, uh, the, psalm, the, the sign of the peace offering, the psalm of the peace offering. Verse 21, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. The stone which the builder refused has become the head stone of the corner. Now that's quoted in Matthew 21 as a reference to the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, that is not a devotional song that you sing every Sunday or every day, okay? This day has nothing about today being a great day or any of that, but rather it's talking about the day of the Lord. It's literally fulfilled in Luke 19 as he looks over Jerusalem, verse 42, cries there and says, this day, if you had, then you're not going to get visited, but you're getting visited now, okay? It's a very specific day in prophecy. Now watch verse 25. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, and send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord. Now watch. With hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even under the horns of the altar. That is a picture that's quoted, verse 25 and 26, is quoted in Matthew 21, Luke 19, as a reference to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, going to be crucified. Okay? So the event of him coming into Jerusalem, Hosanna, when they say that, if they had by faith meant it, then what would they have done? They would have bind the sacrifice, and they would have went ahead and crucified the Lord. But they don't. What are they doing? Remember, when the Lord comes in, Palm Sunday religion calendar call, when he comes in on the 10th day of the month, what is Israel out doing? They're picking their lamb for their Passover to kill. They're out there looking for him to set him aside and to... to to look at him and watch him. And if Israel, by faith, had been operating in faith, they would have seen their, the true lamb come in. And what would they have done? They had to bind the sacrifice with cords, even under the horns of the altar. That's what they would have done. Now, you think about binding the cords, binding the sacrifice, the great illustration is Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac. And what has Isaac done? He's bound. And he's up on the altar. And he says, hey, isn't there a lamb? Isn't there a ram? And Abraham says, hey, that great picture of the cross. They would have went ahead and sacrificed the Messiah because a sacrifice was required. They would have went ahead and sacrificed the lamb of God. Because that's what was required by the law. But now they don't. They're operating in what? An unbelief. I told you to hold Acts. Go back to Acts 2. You see, if Israel had responded positively 
to the call of John the Baptist, prepare the way, repent, be, and to Jesus Christ, you are the Messiah, you're the one, they could have by faith offered the sacrifice. And it would have been accepted, well-pleasing, and so on. But they don't. Acts chapter 2, Peter looks at him in verse 23, and he says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. It's interesting, wicked hands. They would have still taken him by clean hands and just faithful hands and done it, but they didn't. They did it by what? By wicked hands. If they would have if they could not have responded by faith to the ministry of John and the ministry of the Lord, then the offering would not have been legitimate. That's why Matthew 11 is so key. If the, if the contingent, if they had believed, then this would have, it would have, it has to run its course. It would have just been done out of faith, not unbelief. So when you go back to Mark 9, the importance of this, by the way, they understand that he's talking about John the Baptist. They're beginning to, to understand the contingents. They're, again, that contingency was in place because, now again, God knows how Israel's going to respond, but there's also that chance that they would respond the other direction, Okay. And he has to allow for that so that the volition of man is allowed to run its course. I was reading some stuff about uh, the, the uh, universalism and annihilation and all that stuff. And every, everything I was, I've been reading, everybody said, that believes in it says, how can a loving God do this to people? Well, he's a loving God. He died for your sins. He provides that. But he's a just God. He gave his word, and his word has to be carried out. That's what's happening here. They, Christ, they didn't believe. By the way, John over there, they didn't believe, so he what? Blinded their minds, so they couldn't believe. And what did they go do? They went and killed him. And they didn't have to. They could have believed. Everything would have been set right. But they didn't. So in Mark 9, what do we see? I'm going to go die. Here's the glory. And now we're struggling with the timing. And again, why that's important is because when they get to the bottom of that hill, there is a big mess going on. And they've got to have to get in it. And they could, the, the, the disciples can't heal, they can't do, they can't cast the devil out, they can't do all this. And they don't understand why. And we get this big picture of the spiritual condition of not only Israel, but of the world. Christ comes, delivers them. Yet there's a problem in that little flock. And that problem in that little flock is they're not full, they're not believing the progressive revelation. They're not moving forward in the revelation given to them. And we'll get into all that next week, okay? But just see what's happening here. There's a great thing that's happening 
as the Lord, again, goes in, shows them, talks to them, is teaching them, educating them, moving them forward. They have a timing question, they get that answered, and then they just keep moving forward, okay? So we'll pick up in verse 14 next time and move on down through. Uh, so we got 9 to 13. Uh, we're getting there, a few more verses. But uh, again, th this is, it's very key in this. Very critical to see because as you move forward, the Lord is, he's withdrawn himself from the mass out there. Now there's a multitude here, and again, because they can't do something that they were able to do before, and it's because they're not trusting the word. They're not following the word, the progressive revelation and everything, and I'll try not to teach it anymore, okay? All right, we'll talk, we'll get into that next time. Dearly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for everything that we have in your son. We're thankful for the insight into your earthly ministry and what was transpiring there as you were on your way to Calvary. In your name we pray, amen.